I hate to break it to you, but masculine men do care about how they look. And while I'm not a big fan of the word should, I'm breaking my own rule today by saying you should too. We've gotten to the point in society where I personally feel a bit uncomfortable wearing my tuxedo, which is a staple in my wardrobe when we go to the symphony, because when we show up, I'm about five levels of formality higher than anyone else in the hall. Over the long shorts, um, flip-flops, and t-shirts, and a hoodie, and maybe a backwards hat, when you're going to the store or the symphony, have now become the standard of dress for people in America. Not for the evolved man. If you're an average American, you're obese. Statistically, there are more obese individuals than there are people who are lean and fit. And overall, standards of health movement, nutrition, mental health, and yes, even physical appearance have tanked. Today's guest is my friend Tanner Guzzi, and you have heard Tanner before on the Evolve podcast. Tanner is a men's style coach. And as we step into this next episode of The Evolved Man, uh, we, we laughed because Tanner teaches men how to dress better, look better. I teach men how to move better and eat better. Uh, essentially, we have the same job. We have the same vision. We have the same purpose. And that is to help men become the most evolved version of themselves. In today's conversation, we discuss the importance of understanding how your visual appearance affects your ability to be successful in every area of life and how visual appearance is one of the most important forms of communication that you use, whether you want to believe it or not. We break down some of the major mistakes men make and give some basic building blocks that any man can start with. Once again, Tanner showed up well for this episode and dropped some amazing insights for you, our listeners, and I'm excited for you to get some time with him today. So with that, welcome back, Tanner Guzzi, and on to the show. Welcome to The Evolved Man where we are at war with the mediocrity of modern man. The Evolved Man is for men like you who are willing to be strong, open, and aggressive learners. Men who are not afraid to disrupt and change. It's time we ditch the current conventional idea that we devolve with age, that the dad bod is our destiny, and that the glory days are behind us. Your best isn't behind you, and I'm here to provide you with practical tools, a few tips and tricks, and everyday wisdom to help you evolve into your highest form. Strong, lean, smart, educated, and emotionally intelligent. Now, let's go to war. Well, uh, great to see you again. Good to be back. Yeah, thanks for jumping on. Always. Uh, I, I want to kick off by, uh, I guess, a statement and a question. Uh, I, I really, I think ultimately there's two types of people in this world. Uh, there's those that see the world as it is, and then there are those that say that the world should be a different way. <laughs> for instance, uh, there's many people that say that we shouldn't judge people by their outward appearance. But uh, the fact is we do. And in fact, many scientists believe that there are biological uh, reasons for that, that uh, are species dependent. 
So we're going to take the perspective of the former, not the latter. We're not going to shoot on ourselves. And we're going to say that uh, we do judge people and ourselves by our outward appearance. And frankly, I don't think it's a bad thing. But with that in mind, how does outward appearance uh, affect a man and how others see him? This is, I, I love that you're framing this this way, because I think one of the most fascinating things that we've experienced is the complete, like, muting of the understanding that visual appearance and visual communication, it's an entire language yes. that people have always used as ways to, to express things to each other. And, you know, you go, you go to any culture at any point in history, and people have used grooming, clothing, scarification, tattoos, posture, body language, all of these other variables, we use them naturally, as ways to express things. In fact, most people, when it comes to clothing, ironically, think that clothing was originally created or intended as a way to protect us from the elements. But mm. if you go to certain cultures that are in kind of like idyllic cir circumstances or situations, like in certain parts of South America, or others in part of Australia, where they literally do not need clothing to protect them from anything, because their physical circumstances are so good. The, they've found tribes in these environments that will still use some version of body paint or they will still adorn themselves with feathers or still use some version of something purely for the version of visual communication. That's it. That's that's all it's intended for. And so this is something that as men, I think the irony is that we've been kind of duped into thinking that it doesn't matter, but that's just another way of making it matter, if that makes sense. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Where do you think the narrative is coming from that men shouldn't care about how they look? Um, it's a, I've thought a lot about this one. And I think even the nature of this question is different now than it would have been 10 or 15 years ago. And that's different than it would have been 10 or 15 years prior to that, because my experience has been that it's largely a Gen X and millennial, and probably even just like an older millennial, like we're in this weird kind of like generational bubble where we're the ones who really heavily got that message. And men prior to that didn't get it as heavily as we did. And younger millennials, and certainly Gen Z and Gen Alpha are not getting that message the same way that we did when we were growing up. And so I think that we were in kind of like this perfect storm of, I don't know, you could talk about like, the cultural revolution and especially the sexual revolution that the boomers went through. And it was kind of like this, we're rebelling against everything that our parents established prior, <clears throat> but at the same time, they hadn't taken it to the extent that there was the rejection of like traditional gender roles. And so you still had to like a real man does this or a real man doesn't do that. And there was this apathy or the, and, and you know, that was another kind of thing that was very unique to Gen X is that uh, Gen X older millennials, we grew up with the idea that it's just not cared. It's not cool to look like you care about anything. Yeah, You know, yeah. like any sort of in, like genuine interest in or sincerity about anything was the realm of dorks and losers. And it was it was the cool guys that were the ones that were just apathetic and kind of above it all and indifferent. And you had this uh, aloofness. And so that certainly would apply to that applied to school that applied to trying too hard in sports for a lot of guys that, that applied to to dating that applied to uh, religious or philosophical beliefs. And so it would stand a reason that that would also apply to your appearance as well. Yeah. So I think that there's that kind of like weird, again, perfect storm of those, those cultural influences in that particular generation is where that really took root. 
Did you read the uh, Beastie Boys anthology book or listen to it? I did not. It? No. So I listened to it on Audible and I would highly recommend it uh, to anybody that uh, has any interest in that time period, but also mm-hmm. the Beastie Boys. Um, and it's interesting because the Audible version, uh, the Beastie Boys read some of the chapters and then they have just random people read other Oh, chapters. interesting. I mean, like Wanda Sykes did a chapter. And I'm like, I have no idea how this that's fascinating has any link to them but uh anyway they talk about in there this entire idea that you're just discussing that their whole focus was always to give the impression that they just didn't care that it to care about anything it wasn't cool and mm-hmm. so they they said they just lived in this almost constant anxiety because they cared and they wanted to be successful. And yet they had to put off this idea that they didn't care because somehow that was cool. You mentioned that the pendulum has swung, uh, uh, you know, more so uh, in the other direction with the uh, generations that come after our generation but there are so many men out there that sit in this Gen X and maybe, uh, you know, Gen X to uh, the, what, what, what's the next generation called? A kind of older millennial, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. The Xennials or the older millennials. Yeah. The yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that still sit in that, that mentality. How do men overcome that? If that's something I, that's still rooted in them. I think that what you really have to kind of like address with that is why are you letting the attitudes that shaped you as a teenager still be the attitudes that shape you as a man in your thirties, forties, and Mm fifties. Like why, why is it that that indifference and aloofness that was so crucial then you, you should have lived enough life by now to learn that you should care about your career. You should care about your philosophies, your religious beliefs. You should care about your family. There are things that I hope that, that Gen X and and older millennials have learned that it's like, it's worth it to care about things and to be sincere about things and to put effort into things. If not, I mean, and I think we're very much preaching to the choir with your show. Your listeners are guys who care about things. Otherwise they wouldn't be on here. And so then it is, you've discovered the lie about indifference in some of these arenas in your life. Be willing to recognize that it was a lie in other arenas in your life as well. That's and I think part of it, I was, I, I was thinking about this just this week, because I actually, um, just a couple of nights ago, I actually went and spoke to a, a group of a bunch of young men between the ages of like 13 and 18 on why the style matters, why, you know, how they can use it as a way to communicate, even at their age and everything else. And it was fascinating to watch their reaction. There was about 20, 25 of them to watch how they were reacting to what I was teaching versus the like five adult leaders that were sitting in the back of the room and how they were responding to things that I was mm-hmm. teaching. And what I found is that one of the things that's really interesting is I think uh, one of the reasons why we we as older guys resist this is you should be experimenting this with this stuff when you're a teenager. Yeah, and, that's a good point. Right? And by the yeah. time you're an adult, we have this very kind of like subconscious and very culturally ingrained and none of this is bad, but this just is what it is this idea that you should have all of this figured out. And so I think there's a lot of reticence to the idea of, I don't want to look like I'm learning or I'm experimenting or I'm trying to figure this out when I'm in my thirties, forties or fifties, because I should already have this figured out. And so the way that I can soothe myself is that I can continue 
to identify with the lie that it's not cool to care about this stuff or that I'm supposed to be indifferent about this stuff. That's a fascinating concept. Uh, but I think it really resonates on several levels. You, you sparked something in my mind where the other day I was on a, on a group coaching call with this group that I belong to. And I threw a question out to the group and I, I believe um, if I understood the group correctly, that I was probably the oldest there, one of the oldest, mm -hmm. and I was probably had the longest experience in my industry of anybody that was on that call. But I posed the question, I said, hey, here's a situation that I'm dealing with with a client. This is not my area of expertise. I've done a little bit of research, but I'm wondering if anybody else, if this is an appropriate question, if anybody else has an answer to this or has some other resources. And the proctor of the call jumped on and said, uh, A, that's the perfect question for this forum. And B, before anybody jumps in, let me just highlight the, what Steve just did. This is why we have these calls. Don't hide what you don't know, guys. And that it doesn't matter how long you're in the business or how long you've been doing something, just be open to ask those questions. So as that, with that as a baseline, what is it about getting older that causes us to believe that we have to now posture and not try new things, not test things out, not experiment, not play with stuff? So, okay. So I think that there's two things that come into play with that. One is that idea that we've already hit on as far as like that effortlessness and that indifference that we're supposed to just still be aloof and kind of above it all, or the things that we've accomplished have happened to us because of almost even in spite of that, because we're so naturally gifted mm -hmm. and we're so good at things because effortlessness is really kind of one of the, uh, the hallmarks of, of mastery. And that's what we want to see, especially at our age is we want to see effortless mastery. Right. Yeah. And and I think that that's the other element that ties into this is this whole idea of mastery. My friend Jack Donovan wrote a book called The Way of Men in which he breaks down the idea of like masculinity across cultures has valued strength, courage, mastery, and honor as like masculine virtues. And this idea of mastery, like you have to be good at something. And I think a lot of us have taken it to the idea of you don't only have to be good at something, but you kind of have to be good at, yeah, you're you're allowed like one or two areas of expertise, but when it comes to just basic existing as an adult, you're supposed to be really good at all of that as well. So you have your, you know, your one area or two areas of expertise that you get to specialize in. But by the time you're in your 30s to your 50s, you're also supposed to be really, really good at everything else. And so I think a lot of us hate to admit that I was actually talking about this with some friends last night, where your ego feels a little bit pricked if one of your buddies knows everything there is to know about cars and you have to say, okay, tell me exactly why a spark plug works. Because yeah. part of you feels like <laughs> I should know this. I should know how this works. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for a lot of guys, it's the same thing where, you know, you go to, you go to a fight gym and you, you I'm, a, I'm a man, of course, you know, I see red when I like, things are going to be fine when, when things go down and then you go and you realize that you have no idea how to throw a punch, right? Or you have no idea how to handle yourself on the ground if you're in a jujitsu match. Mm -hmm. And most guys won't ever even set foot in in that realm because they don't want to. They don't want to confront the idea that they may not be good at that particular thing. I think that's why a lot of people don't want to do public speaking because you should be able to articulate yourself and and express your ideas. Right. And they're terrified of the idea that I may not be good at it. And so I think clothing is another one of those things where it's like, dude you've gotten dressed every day for your entire life and you've dressed yourself every day for multiple decades. 
most guys are just like, I would never want to even confront the idea that I may not be good at this. And so I'm just, I'm just going to pretend that I, that it doesn't matter instead. Yeah, that's a good, that's a great perspective. I, and you brought up a, a, it's something that I've thought about oftentimes whenever a plumber comes over or an electrician, I, I hate doing electrical work. I have no aptitude for it. I have no desire to do it. Uh, there was one time where my wife kind of cajoled me into helping out with, you know, at, at doing a new light or I, I don't remember what we were doing. I got zapped and I thought, yeah, I, I don't like anything about this. There, there's nothing mm-hmm. that I like about this. I would much rather hire an electrician to come and do it right. And the same thing with plumbing and many other things around the house. I'm, I can do some things. I just don't enjoy doing a lot of the stuff. And for a long time, when I would make those phone calls, I found myself over explaining what was going on. Almost like that I had to prove that this problem was so far beyond my masculine capabilities that I needed the true expert to be there because it was bruising mm-hmm. my ego to call an expert. And it, it, something shifts, you know, at, at a certain point, I don't feel like that, but I felt like that because I believe that the male ego does feel like it has to be good at all things. Yeah. How do well, I get over? I that? almost wonder if that even comes into, I, I, okay, sorry. We're just kind of like you and I are discussing this as friends and waxing philosophical, right. but right, right. you know, <laughs> because when I think about this, I wonder how much of this is even more unique to it being like Western culture, particularly even like American or like, you know, uh, Western hemisphere culture versus just Western European culture. And also the fact that we have this kind of like, almost like pedestalization of the middle class. Because, you know, again, if you were to go back in time 400 years ago, and you were to look at European aristocracy, I don't think any of those men would feel like their masculinity was threatened in any way because they outsourced menial labor to other classes of people. Right. Their masculinity yeah. was expressed in other ways. And I doubt that there was any sort of um, self-consciousness about the fact that a lord wouldn't wouldn't be capable of cutting down timber and building a home by himself. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. But I do think, but we do feel that today. And I would say that even our like elites, like our upper class, and again, you know, we you could look at this through the closing clothing lens, you can look at this through any other lens, is our elites posture as if they're middle class in every way, except for they have money. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so we do, we have this kind of like almost love affair with in order to be the pinnacle of society or a good person in society and a good man in society, it's that you have to you know, make millions of dollars and have influence and everything else. But at the same time, you can change the oil in a car and swap out a chandelier and know how to deal with the fuse boxes and everything else and handle yourself in a fight and be able to, you know, diffuse C4. And like, you you know, you have to have all of these different, but I think, I think it's, this is another thing that's very unique to our culture and our time period. And if you zoom out culturally, it, it wasn't always that same way. That's a great perspective. And I, I, I think I'm with you on that. It, uh, we, we pick those things up from movies. We pick those things up through uh, popular culture. And we, I believe nowadays, are so inundated with so many different images that we believe that we have to have all of those things in mm-hmm. order to, to be uh, masculine. Now, 
we've talked about this before, but I don't think we've talked about it specifically on the podcast. Um, what what you teach is, you know, your your program is called masculine style, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, when you think about masculinity and specifically masculinity as it has been uh, promoted or put down in popular culture uh, nowadays, and especially woke culture, fights significantly against masculinity. So I guess a couple of questions relative to masculinity. Number one, how do you define masculinity? And number two, why are we fighting against it? Hmm. Okay. So I would say there's a couple different ways to look at masculinity as far as defining it by what it is relative to. And I think in a lot of cases, um, people will look particularly at like, masculinity and uh femininity are are at opposite ends and i think i would again go back to what uh, jack donovan talks about as far as yes women can be appreciated for courage strength mastery and honor but their value to the group value to to humanity is not determined by how well they can demonstrate those virtues mm-hmm. of courage strength mastery and honor in order to be a man and to be valued as a man i think masculinity embodies those four and you may be lacking in one but you have to make up for it in another one or in the other three or something else. Like there has to be some low. And again, we see this where, you know, you look at different classes of people and warriors may be lacking in honor in some cultures, but they make up for it with their, with their strength or their courage or Mm. shamans and priests may be lacking in strength, but they make up for it with their honor or, Farmers may be lacking in, I don't know, maybe in courage, but they make up for it in their mastery, right? And so there's all these different kind of trade-offs. And so I think there's that element of it. But then I think another important aspect to think about it is also the difference between masculinity as far as being a man versus being a child, right? And so it's not just men compared to women, but I also think it's men compared to children. And I would say probably the best definition of that that I've heard is the idea that a child consumes more than he produces. Whereas a man produces more than what he more than he consumes. Interesting, yeah, I right? agree with that. Okay, so, so to, yeah, to answer your first question, I think that those are the two ways that I would that I would define masculinity as far as the comparison against the feminine and also in comparison against the child. Why we're de- why we're getting so much pushback from it? My theory on this is because masculinity inherently lends itself towards personal sovereignty and a a group of people a society of people a civilization of people that have access to all the tools and resources that we do from information technology just like capacity to move large distances and numbers and things like that if we have all of those resources and you have the sovereignty and the self-determination that comes with men being men and women being women that's where there's big threats to people that are more interested in power than they are in necessarily what's good for everybody else. Interesting. And, and so I think it's a lot easier at this point, or maybe a lot more effective at this point, because you could have, you could have, you know, suppressed rebellions or kept the, the average man down 300 years ago. You didn't have to necessarily beat the masculinity out of him because he didn't have the technology or the, or the physical resources or the network or anything else in order to be able to make things happen. Now, obviously there were still revolutions, revolutions and wars and things like that, but 
I think it was a lot easier for those in power to stay in power when they had more of a monopoly on some of those external resources. Now those have all been just given to basically everybody. You know, you have we have as much access to information on our phones as anybody else does. And so you have to take out one of the other legs of the stool, which is I think where that that fight against masculinity and femininity and family comes in. Toxic masculinity is something that has been thrown around and it's almost uh, be, become so synonymous with masculine uh, in, in, the, in the larger vocabulary. What do men need to do to fight against this narrative, against this, that, that masculinity in and of itself is toxic? So I think that you can look at toxic masculinity. <clears throat> I'll look at this through kind of like the Christian parable of the straight and narrow path. Okay. And I would say healthy masculinity is on the straight and narrow path. And what happens is that we get opposite sides of it where you could fall into real problems. And so I hate the term toxic masculinity. I think it's stupid. I think it's weaponized, but I think that you can make the argument that uncontrolled masculine impulses, things like anger, things like domination, things like physical capacity, like you take those, again, courage, strength, mastery, and honor, and you take those into realms of they're being taken to too far an extreme, right? Mm -hmm. Then that's where you could, you could make the argument that it's like that uncontrolled or almost that like childish or that unfettered version of masculine uh, attributes, that's where things become a problem. But now what we're seeing is that not only is this side of the straight and narrow a problem, but even the straight and narrow is a problem. And the only way to be able to create things that work is to just skew masculinity altogether and embrace femininity and move or androgyny or any of these other things. And that creates just as many problems as unfettered masculine impulses as well. And so the solution to toxic masculinity is not an absence of masculinity. That's this solution over here. But the real solution is an absence of that self-control over those masculine impulse and attributes. Yeah, it, it really boils down to what's on the inside, what comes out, and how is that regulated? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And it's hard because so many men, so many young men grow up with the idea of <clears throat> that the only, that, that being a man is shameful. Mm -hmm. And so the only way to be a good man is to completely neuter yourself and completely again go over onto this other side as far as what the path is but those things are biologically wired into us and if you find yourself in dire enough circumstances where things are emotionally stressful enough or physically threatening enough or anything else those impulses are going to be there and so if you spend your entire life suppressing 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 eventually that's going to come out and so we're so much better off personally learning how to control rather than suppress, learning how to channel rather than suppress. And we're certainly better off teaching our our children and especially our boys in learning how to control rather than suppress. Yeah. Yeah. Any, what's the phrase, uh, an emotion buried alive never dies. And, you know, if we have emotions, we have feelings, we have some of those uh, impulses and we don't find healthy ways to express them. We, we, push them down, they will seep out in mm -hmm. extremely negative ways. I mean, I, I look at uh, just the, the the massive rise in pornographic consumption in America, uh, and specifically where we live in Utah. It mm -hmm. is just mind-blowing to me that as we continue to suppress 
our uh, natural masculinity that we are essentially trying to neuter ourselves. And then it comes out in this distorted way. We're seeking mm-hmm. quick dopaminergic hits to feel better rather than what does it truly take to become a masculine man? You know, you reference the idea of uh, going to battle and fighting. Uh, we've talked about this before that uh, about a year and a half ago, I uh, was, you know, making my morning coffee and realized that there was a, there was a guy that broke into our house at, you know, four thirty, five o'clock AM. Uh, and I just, we, we had to, we had to go toe to toe. Yeah. I have to take care of business. Fortunately, it was a situation that ended up in a positive way, uh, for us where we were able to get him out of the house and, um, it didn't turn out negative in any way. I, at the time thought to myself, okay, what do I do in this situation? And I had to make some very quick decisions. I chose not to uh, grab the shotgun. I chose not mm-hmm. to grab uh, any of the pistols because of where I found him in the home. And because I thought if something happened and if I missed, then one direction, it's my daughter's room. The other direction, it's my son's room. But also, I've been on the end of trying to save a life. I do not want to take one if I don't have to. And I didn't want mm-hmm. to take it to a to that level if it didn't need to but afterwards i sat down and thought i'm ill-equipped to handle this appropriately if he had any type of training whatsoever Mm -hmm. and it made me realize a massive gap in my ability to not just be courageous in the moment but to have a certain level of mastery or protection and so i uh, reached out, called one of my friends and started taking some, uh, one-on-one with him, uh, to learn some, uh, some self-defense, some, you know, uh, MMA type, uh, techniques that, that he mm-hmm. fights with. Um, it just, I, I think as we go through life, it's important that men recognize these different aspects as they come up, that they pause and they say, okay, we, we can pick things up along the way and we can grow and we can improve ourselves. Um, but it's, yeah, I I don't know. I'm not, I'm not even sure where I'm going with this, (laughs) this thought, other than the idea that I do believe we have to continually learn and grow. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So I want to shift gears just a, just a little bit. I'm listening to a, a, an audio book by, uh, uh, Leo loudness. And she says something to the effect that show me what a man looks like, and I will show you what he believes. How do you, how do we communicate our beliefs through the visual communication? So it happens a lot more potently than people think it does because even something, okay. How easy is it for you to be downtown in a major metropolitan area and be able to recognize if somebody is most likely homeless or not? Mm, Yeah. Pretty easy, right? Yep. And it's because that is what the absolute bottom of the barrel as far as like real apathy and indifference to your appearance looks like. It's those guys. The guy who works a a regular white or blue collar job and and, and says, you know, this whole real men don't care how they look type of thing. He doesn't look like a homeless guy. He still goes out of his way to 
put on the uniform of what his supposed indifference or apathy looks like, right? And so if you want to see like the complete antipathy or indifference for uh, for what appearances, it's pretty easy to be able to recognize that. So if we rule that out, then from there, it's really easy to be able to see like most of the time, if somebody has a lot of self-discipline, you can see it in their appearance and in their grooming. Most of the time, if somebody is an appreciator of beauty and loves aesthetics and loves nature and creation, you can see that in their grooming. If somebody is self-conscious about who they are and wants to blend in and disappear and doesn't want the pressure of having people have expectations of them, you can see that in their clothing and their grooming. And it's one of those things that I think that we all kind of pretend that we don't see because if I pretend I don't see it in you, then you will do me the favor of pretending you don't see it in me. And so we can all just go along with this, you know, emperor's new clothes idea of, of, you know, appearance doesn't matter. But as soon as you are willing to consciously step out and actually go people watching, go people watching and give yourself permission to not like morally judge people as far as like, this is a good person or that's a bad person, but see what kind of stories you can fabricate about who people are, what they do for a living, where they live, what kind of hobbies they're interested in, what their political affiliations are, those types of things. Give, give yourself permission to, to extrapolate as many stereotypes you can based on the way that people dress and what their clothing and the grooming is and realize how naturally that comes because we're all playing to that, yeah. you know? It does communicate massively. In fact, um, it's been said that of the three V's of communication, visual, verbal, and voice, visual communication communicates at least 70%, if not more, uh, to other people. And that outward appearance uh, and the body language is just so powerful. So with that in mind, um, you know, you've talked about how men that you've worked with have been able to see an increase in their earning power. What's at play there? So... I would say probably one of the biggest things that's play there is this idea that's called the halo effect, where when we see something that we find admirable or likable or appreciable about a person, then we have a tendency to give them the benefit of the doubt on other things as well. Mm. And what's fascinating about this is that this is all very relative to like the industry that you're in or where in the world you live or things like that, because Let's say that you can create a good visual halo effect by dressing well. Dressing well looks different if you're an attorney in New York City than it is if you own a roofing company in middle of America. And, you know, if I were to show up, let's say that I ran a roofing business, okay? If I show up on a job site and I look like I'm Harvey Specter from Suits, that's going to create that <laughs> negative halo effect, right? right? Right. And at the same time, if I'm... If I'm walking into court and I look like I'm a guy who runs a blue collar business, that's going to have a negative effect there as well. And yeah. so you can, my guys experience this, this increase in their, you know, they, they get raises, they get better clients they're they get, uh, you know, their businesses grow, they're able to hire better employees and all of that, because we work together on being able to understand what's unique about the circumstances in which they find themselves and what they actually are as individuals. And we can create that halo effect for them so that other people want to see them the way that they, that they can be seen. And it does lead to more confidence and more success and better communication and everything else. So it's internal and external. It's not oh, very much so. that they are uh, getting the raise because they look better, but they have more confidence. They show up in a different way. Okay, think about this, because I know you do public speaking, right? right? Right. Imagine that your 
your delivery as far as like your cadence and your ability to actually say the words, the right words, that's the same. But you, okay, so we've got you giving two different speeches or the speech in two different contexts. You know, then the cadence is the same. Your delivery of the words is the exact same. But in one of those circumstances, you're feeling very self-conscious. And in another one of those cases, you're feeling incredibly confident. It's very obvious that even though a lot of those fundamentals will stay the same, your delivery will improve drastically because you're confident than it will if you're self-conscious, right? Right. And so that's the kind of stuff that we can create is that you may may still do just as good of a job in court or when you're actually fixing something with your hands or when you're showing up as a dad, like the actual deliverables may not be that different, but your confidence will actually improve your performance drastically and it will improve other people's perception of your performance drastically as well. So it is very much, it is just as much internal as it is external. It also uh, going back to the to the quote about giving people permission to uh, to level up, giving people permission to let their light shine. As soon as you do that, you start to give people permission to be better. Mm-hmm. I think that's a powerful piece. Mm-hmm. And people love people who do that for them. Yeah, right. I, too too much of society is uh, built on negativity, uh, and we're you know I mean if you turn the news on every story, I think it's it's got to be like ninety nine percent of the news is all negative stories. There's a crash here, this bad thing happened there, and then every once in a while you see a cat getting rescued from a tree, but right. most of the time it's the negativity. So anybody that helps you to live a more positive life by showing up in a positive way, I think it uh, it makes a massive difference. You have something called the, the tucked gang. Now, do you recommend <laughs> that uh, men become mother tuckers? <laughs> oh, oh, man. Okay, so this is the idea that um, guys who are in, in good shape, it's actually to your advantage to tuck in your shirt. And I know that, again, like Gen X guys are going to hear this and groan and just be like, dude, why are you telling me this? Okay, I want you to, again, think about a very specific cultural context, okay? When we were growing up, it was the dorks. It was Steve Urkel. It was yeah. Carlton. It was all, it was these guys that would tuck in their shirts. And there was an element of, again, that indifference, that like, uh, that aloofness of like, of course, I'm not going to tuck my shirt in, right? Where there was that element of rebellion that came there with it. And it was, there was, it was, it was dorky to tuck in your shirt and it was cool to leave your shirt untucked, especially as a teenager if you're growing up in the 80s or the 90s. All right. That's dad style now. You're the dork, right? Yeah, like yeah. we're we're the dorky dads. And as much as you may think that that's not the case, like we're the dorky dads, okay? And rebellion comes and goes in different ways, but there's also an element of not only is it not necessarily edgy or angst or angsty anymore, which really like you shouldn't still be trying to, you know, give your dad the middle finger when you're the one who's in your 40s. Right. But there's also the element of when you do have your shirt tucked in and you're in great shape, the actual like scientific aesthetics of it is better it it affects like the golden ratio and so it makes your chest look broader and it makes your shoulders look broader it makes your legs look longer and so your overall proportion is closer to da vinci's vitruvian man it makes you look like you're healthy and in shape more now it actually communicates a level of like there's some element of rebellion to this which is kind of ironic but there's also just a little bit more of this idea of discipline And more often than not, when guys are wearing their shirts and especially button up shirts and they're not tucked in, what this ends up looking like is 
I don't want to have to put on a, a button up shirt, but mommy or wifey is making me do it. And this is my version of like kicking my feet and stamping and throwing a temper tantrum, but still begrudgingly going along with it anyway. Whereas if you tuck in your shirt, then you look like you're dressing this way because you want to, not because somebody else is making you. And so it does end up communicating a lot more of this, like not only self-respect, but also self-mastery. Whereas if your shirt is left untucked, you look like you're pouting. What's worse, your wife bought it for you. And so you're putting it on because she forcing you mm -hmm. to wear it because yeah. she bought it for you. Yeah. And you're, you're pouting about that. It's like, yes, dear. Yeah. It's that type of attitude. Yeah. What is a wasp? <laughs> so this term, this is white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And if you think of like, you know, as Ivy League as it gets, this is, and there's, there's a whole aesthetic to this. You think of like, okay, what are some good cultural references that we could pull from? Um, I think of uh, very Ken much Kennedy. like, yep, Kennedy. Uh, you could think of, uh, you know, some more like pop culture references. Like this was what Andy tried to be Andy from the office. Very oh, much yeah. tried to be okay. was that yeah. that kind of like wasp aesthetic and wasp vibe. Uh, very much like um, Great Gatsby type of stuff. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. And it is there's there's a whole aesthetic that comes with it. When you think of Ivy League prep schools, you think of like the rep stripe ties and the polo sweaters and the loafers and all of that. That's that's the whole wasp vibe. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm going to ask it. What's a wasm? Yeah. <laughs> so this is a term this is something that you and i have been goofing around with so <laughs> you and i are both in both in utah right and one of the things that i think is so interesting about being in utah is latter-day saints do not have at least from an aesthetic standpoint there's not a very like cultural we don't have an aesthetic that we lean into like this is our thing this is our vibe not, you know, not a good and one. it's so fast. Not a good one. You're exactly yeah. right. Like yeah. not a good one. It may be that your, your garments are, your are popping out of your t-shirt and you could see it that way, but it's not, yeah. it's not a very good intentional aesthetic. It's very accidental. Right. And Utah's in this kind of weird place because we've got all of these, these fascinating things around us. You've got the, the old West version of things. You've got the Native American culture, you've got the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and that cultural aspect of it, you've got all the outdoors and everything else. And so as you and I have been working through this, uh, Wasm is basically like white Anglo-Saxon Mormon instead of <laughs> instead of Protestant. <laughs> but it's been like trying to experiment with an idea of how do we very unapologetically and very intentionally bring in some of these elements of like the pioneer aesthetic or some of the native aesthetic or some of the outdoorsy vibes, you know, kind of like the ski resorts and all of that. And how do we do that in a way that it looks very much like you're embracing the fact that you're from Utah, even if you don't, whether you do or don't belong to the predominant culture here, embrace the fact that you're from Utah and that Utah has unique elements to it. And I think, I think most cultures and most states should have an approach that's kind of like that. I think so too. It's been fun to play around with. And I think it was, it was funny when that came up. So I'm just putting my vote in for two things. One mother Tuckers, mm -hmm. right. And two Wasm. I love this. So <laughs> I hope you adopt them. I've already told you I'm, I'm giving you full rights to them, but I think that they're great. Um, that in particular has been a fun one to play with because growing up in Utah, uh, I, I, I resonate with a lot of things, the outdoor lifestyle, for sure. So there are aspects of hiking and skiing and snowboarding and all of the outdoor things that 
really resonate. But being on a boat in Utah out wakeboarding is not the same as what you would necessarily see a wasp wearing when he's out on the the long yacht uh, mm-hmm. back east. We're out right? sailing, right? Yeah, yeah. It's mm-hmm. a different. It's a different look. It's a different aesthetic. And what what does that look like? And how do we play with it? One of the things that you got me to do recently is you actually got me to buy my my new favorite pair of pants as we've been exploring this whole WASM concept. And I never in a million years would have thought that at 47 years old, I'd walk into a Cal Ranch store and pick up a pair of Wranglers for 40 mm-hmm. bucks. So it's been fun to wear those, to throw them on with my, I don't know, 25, 30 year old, uh, boots that, that I own that are, I've got the best patina of anything that I own. Cause they are mm-hmm. just beat up and they look amazing. So two questions for you with, uh, relative to this number one, um, you know, I mean, these pants were $40. How, how does price play into how men should think about their purchases? Uh, I would say that when you're in an experimental phase, get away with stuff that's as cheap as you possibly can, because there's no reason to buy really expensive stuff if you don't even know if you're going to like the style, which is why that's the direction we went with the Wranglers. It was like, dude, yeah. walk into Cal Ranch and pay 40 bucks is no big deal on these. And then if we like that, then we could find higher end versions of it. And then that's the second part is when you know that you're really like a good pair of boots, you shouldn't be paying 50 bucks or even 150 bucks for you should be investing the best you can afford in something like that. If you know that you have a coat that you're going to wear for the next two decades, then you should be investing the best you can into something like that. And so there is, and honestly, like, dude, I will have days where I'm wearing jeans that are 200 bucks and boots that are $700. And I'm, I'm in a $6 t-shirt because that t-shirt fits the way that I want it to, you know? And, and so be, be willing to go up and down through the whole spectrum to the best of your ability. Yeah. So second question, um, how can men think about brands or brand names? Because back to the Wranglers, I don't think I've owned a pair of Wranglers since I was a child. Mm Mm-hmm. How do people think about brands or brand names? And this is how much does that play into what we should buy? Yeah. And I, I think that this is a great question, especially given this context, because I think when most people think about brands, especially when they think about brands when it comes to clothing, they immediately think of like status brands. They think, oh, well, you know, this means I have to buy Gucci or Dolce & Gabbana or Mez or something. And first of all, I don't think that you need to be doing anything related to that. But I think a lot of times what guys also end up missing out on is we see brands like Wrangler, for example, that it's like, I'm not going to recommend that you LARP as a cowboy, you know, because you're not. And we don't, that's going to be inconsistent for you and your self-image. And it's also going to be lying to people around you. If you have the Wranglers and the boots and the Pearl Snap shirt and the right cowboy hat and everything, because it's not who you are. But because you are from Utah, because you do engage in outdoor things, buying a brand that may be primarily marketed specifically to cowboys, but you bring in one or two elements of something like that, that's totally appropriate and totally fine. And so I think a lot of guys would be better off if they would put some brands on the table that they may have initially taken off the table. And it doesn't mean that you need to embrace everything about that brand's aesthetic, but bring it in and make it part of your own, which is what we've done with your style. Yeah, that's a great a great way to look at it. Do you have any favorite brands personally or that you recommend for clients? Are there certain things that are go-tos for you? 
So too many brands to recommend as far as uh, like, there's so much variety that I, that I can't just say like, this is what I would recommend anybody start out with right, because, right. you know, so many disparate styles, but the few that I find myself going back to the most consistently because of my style is uh, one of them is called Buck Mason. A lot of my casual stuff mm -hmm. come from, comes from them. I really, really like those guys. Almost all of my formal stuff comes from a brand called Beckett and Rob. Um, I really love seeing brands that have a lot of good heritage to them. And so with rugged stuff that that's brands like Filson, mm -hmm. um, you know, those guys are incredible. Uh, I, I would aspire to that aesthetic, but you know, it's they even just be able to see it or get to see some of my clients who have earned that right more than I have uh, to see guys get to wear stuff like that. I don't know. I, I love seeing a lot of stuff that's kind of all over the place. You know, I love Brunello Cuccinelli or um, a few of these other guys that do really good stuff when it comes to that refined stuff. I actually really love, uh, do you remember Gecko Hawaii? Oh, yeah. 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 Totally. Uh, dude, yeah. I started following them on Instagram lately. That's like some of the most fun, nostalgic, rakish, right? Like it's yeah. just... You know, a lot of these 90s brands, in fact, I, you know, I was telling you about this group of this group of kids that I talked to, two of them had on actual vintage Jenkos that they had wow. bought off of eBay, right? Wow. Jenko is not one of my favorite brands, but it's really fun to see like Gecko Hawaii in that old 90s aesthetic. Like yeah. it's fun to see stuff like that come back. And so my personal taste is kind of very all over the map. And I just like seeing brands that do well with with anything in that regard. I ran into a guy the other day that had a Maui and Sons shirt. And I yes. remember my favorite red Maui and Sons shirt from when I was, I don't even know how old, but when I saw it, it brought back so many great memories. Right. And, uh, that That's one that I, what was the store? Copper Rivet. Do you remember the Copper mm, Rivet? I do. I do. Yep. <laughs> I think that's where I got my Maui and Sons t-shirt from. Was I remember my Maui and Sons skateboard. Yeah. Mine was white. Right. I had a brother who had one that was purple and another brother who had one that was teal. And those were Christmas gifts one year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are certain brands that have that that uh, personal heritage. You know, for me, it's uh, it's been Patagonia. I think that's been one that has stuck with me for so many years. Uh, recently, I had a couple of jackets that were... Uh, one that I just could never see myself wearing again, the style, the the way that the jacket fit, you know, these huge pockets that in the front uh, chest that are way misshapen. And so I took them in, um, one of which is, they're repairing for me. And the other one, I just, um, uh, under their ironclad guarantee, I turned it in. And I think I bought that jacket for a couple of hundred bucks uh, when I was, I mean, it, it was, I was probably 15 years old and mm -hmm. they traded it in for me and gave me $150 credit towards another jacket. That's awesome. This thing's over 30 years old. I bet and, they're pretty stoked to have it. Oh, they were so excited. This girl was holding up, you know, the, uh, the, the girl that was helping me, she's holding this up. She's like, guess how old this is. And the, uh, apparently it was the oldest thing that had been brought in recently. That's awesome. That's and, awesome. But then they were geeking out about the fact that with the other jacket that I uh, was getting repaired, she turned to the person next to her. She goes, this jacket's the same age as me. And <laughs> she was able to find the year that I bought it from, from the, uh, the tag. Turns out it's actually the same age as my oldest daughter. So it's 24 years old. Wild. And the heritage of that brand I, I, I love because I'm such an outdoors geek. Um, 
that there's there it just it, it brings back a lot of memories but i also love the fact that they are not only built to last but they have that guarantee that if you if something goes bad they fix it for free and if you don't like it they'll re, they'll replace it uh, awesome. or give you some sort of value to it so i think that you know as you as you've talked about brands that you prefer that you love uh, thinking through not just the aesthetic, but uh, a heritage piece uh, as well, I think is is something that's pretty powerful. Well, and think about how well you just responded to your own earlier question as far as like visual communication and why clothes, because think of not only your personal memories because of everything that's tied into that jacket, but that this girl is geeking out about it and that people, you know, I've got 15 year old kids that are buying Jenkos that were made in 97 and they're buying them off of eBay because- yeah. There's this cultural component, there's history, there's story, there's all these things that we love and embrace that can be embodied in an article of clothing. And look at what all of that was that happened as you brought that back in and the excitement, the emotion, the connection, everything yeah. else that yeah. came from just a piece of clothing. Yeah. So let me ask you this, because that, that sparked something in my mind. Um, you have said before, I'm trying to remember how you said it, something about how men make uh, adult money, but then they dress like a child. Some something along those lines. <laughs> yeah, and I, I actually kind of stole that from you for, uh, um, and tweaked it a bit to say, hey, do you have an adult sized body, but you eat like a child? Um, <laughs> Give me so, my Dino Nuggies. <laughs> yeah, right, uh, and and loads of ketchup. So, right. uh, talk a little bit about how do men create, how do how do men become men with how they dress if they still want to have some sort of nostalgic piece to it. So maybe they have a certain band. Maybe they geeked out about Star Wars. Maybe they were a huge Lord of the Rings fan when they were younger, uh, whatever it is. It, wh where did they marry those? Yeah, okay. So let's go back to this idea of one of the difference between a man and a child is a man produces more than he consumes, right? Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of guys... Um, sadly, so much of our identity can and still is based, can be and still is based on our consumption of or our affiliation with a particular fandom or band or sport or brand or hobby or anything else. Yeah. Interesting. And just like there's just like it's not saying that being a man is all production and no consumption, right? You you still consume as a man. Right. I would say aesthetically. There's, it's still appropriate to have some level of like who you were as the in the past or your affiliation with this or your association with that, like that level of, of association with a brand or a hobby or a story or movie franchise or anything else is totally fine. But if that's the main thing that your style is built around, that's where you end up looking like a kid. That's a great perspective because you're, you're primarily just promoting the consumption Mm -hmm. rather than something that you're producing. Right. I'm a Mandalorian fan. That's what my identity is rooted in. It's like, dude, yeah. there's nothing wrong with the Mandalorian. It's great and modern version of Western stories and stuff like that. But yeah. let that be part of who you are, not the entirety of who you are. And most guys visually present themselves as my fandom of this is entirely who I am. I like how you had coached me on this because um, I had some old t-shirts that were just sitting in a uh, in, in a drawer somewhere that you said, hey, going to the gym, that's probably a great way to play around with some of those things. And so mm -hmm. I took uh, an old Beastie Boy shirt. I took an old Metallica shirt, which I had not worn for I don't know how long. 
I cut them up a bit and I started rotating those into my uh, workout clothing just as a way to pop some of the, the rakishness of, uh, you know, as, I'm, as I'm building out this wardrobe for working out in the gym and I've loved it. And I don't yeah. feel like I'm walking around as some sort of, uh, dressed up dork, um, or trying to, you know, just be the banner child for Metallica or be the banner child for the, for the beastie boys. Right. Um, it felt very authentic what are other ways that people can take some things that they consume and utilize those as expression pieces without it becoming the main stage? So one of the easiest ways to do it is rather than thinking graphic t-shirt, which is where most of us go. And again, yeah. that takes up the most visual real estate. That's the one that is the most drawing when it comes to perceptions of other people is instead think about smaller tweaks on things. Uh, what I usually recommend for my guys is that's where interesting accessories can come in. Mm. And so maybe you've got a ring or you've got a bracelet or you've got a pendant on a necklace or something else that's a little bit more subtle that way. Maybe you've got, you know, a a, a dial on your watch. You buy a watch and you and it has a specific dial. Like it's, I don't know, Lord of the Rings or Disney themed or something else like that. Like there's ways that you could play with those things that, <laughs> excuse me, that are a little bit more subtle rather than it having to be, this graphic on a t-shirt that takes up your entire chest, or maybe you do go the graphic t-shirt route. One of the easiest things that you could do just wear it so that it just becomes that it's there, but it's not this in your face billboard. It's something that's a little bit, I wouldn't say hidden, but it's a little bit just like, I don't care if you recognize that this is a beastie boy shirt or not, mm -hmm. because I'm happy to layer something else over it. Whereas if you, if it's the only thing that you have on, it feels a little bit more desperate. It's like, please recognize that this is what I'm into and that this is what you're going to judge me by and associate me, associate me with. That's a great perspective. I, you know, we, we talked about this, uh, relative to accessories and a couple of things that I wanted to unpack there. You know, I, I wear the watch I wear because of the, uh, because of the value, because of the longevity, because of the fact that it's it's fairly understated, uh, because of the fact that it has a history to it, uh, and that is that that means a lot to me, and also I believe it's got a future to it that can be passed on to my son and to his son, and so I wear it because of that, and it doesn't yell and scream, "Look at me." Now, people who know, know, and I've had many mm -hmm. people come up just randomly grab my wrist and say, oh, which one is that? And we'll have a conversation. But those conversations are few and far between. And, and it's for people and, in the know. Yeah, exactly. And and there's a kinship there. There's a bond when that happens. But it's not a yelling and screaming type of thing. Mm -hmm. I can't remember if it's a ring or what it is that you wear where you it has a symbol that is a uh, a religious symbol that means something to you. Yeah, it's right? my ring. Yeah. And I, when you were showing it to me and, and talking about it, I thought, wow, what a really cool way to nod towards a spiritual belief, to nod towards religion without overtly showing. And so mm -hmm. there may be people who know, maybe nobody does, but then it's also a conversation piece um, if you're in a conversation where that becomes an appropriate part of the conversation. So I think that's a great uh, perspective. You know, thinking through... Um, Religion, a religious leader and, and author that I I really loved his books, uh, Sterling Seal, he once wrote, 
that a healthy body is a dwelling place best suited for a clear mind, a pure heart, and an enthusiastic spirit. How does health and fitness and a, the physique of a man play into how others perceive him? Oh, it's huge. I think that, again, that goes back to even just how we're biologically wired, where animals in the animal kingdom can recognize the vitality of, you know, a, a lion in a pack is going to know who's more dominant and competent and capable if someone is big and healthy versus another lion that's sickly and is malnourished and isn't taking care of himself. I think that that is very much wired into who we are and how we perceive people. And we can try to culturally override that by saying that these cues don't matter or that we could try to hide it with clothing or things like that. But it's it's massive. It's I, I think, in fact, I agree with a lot of, you know, there's other contemporaries that I have. One of them that comes to mind is a friend who runs a site called Well-Built Style. And one of his arguments is that your physique is primary and then the clothing you adorn it with is secondary. And you really can. You can get away with a very simple jeans and a t-shirt if you've got a great build and you could pull off a lot of styles with a great physique that you can't otherwise. So it's it's absolutely important and huge. Yeah. Great, great perspective. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, one concept that I've, uh, I, or excuse me, uh, masculinity, as we've talked about, it's really gotten this, this, this bad rap. And you hear people, you see people out there that are thinking to the, you know, pretending to be a king and, you know, they're banging their chest and they're running around and they're eating liver and they're throwing things around. Um, how does a man dress in a way to show that he's a masculine man without having to do all of these extra overt type things that you see many people doing on social media. Man, this is a harder challenge than I think most people would recognize on the surface because ultimately dressing to show masculinity is entirely culturally dependent. I, you know, for, like the cover of my book, for example, that uh, it's called The Appearance of Power. You guys who are watching could see me pointing at it. You guys who are listening, just even just go look up the cover by looking it up. You know, I've got um, I've got uh, Eagle Warrior from the Aztecs. I've got different tribesmen from different parts of Africa wearing masks. You've got aristocrats from France in the 1600s. You've got a cowboy from America. And they like, these guys are all dressed in a way that would have been perceived as a healthy demonstration of masculine masculinity in their culture at that particular time. Okay. So if we understand that we're in a really weird position where the West for the last, I don't know, however many centuries, but for a good long time, let's say through from the enlightenment until the seventies until the sexual revolution. Okay. Was a dignity culture. And it was one where dignity was the thing that people aspired to. And that included things like conformity or modesty or self-respect, but also respect for others and things like that. Like we were a dignity culture and, and demonstrating dignity in how you interact with people, the way that you behaved yourself, the way that you kept your home and the way that you dressed was the imperative. Okay. I would say that there are still elements of that dignity culture that we are holding on to, but we're losing more and more of that as years go. And then we're now in the middle of two in ways competing, but also in ways, very complementary cultures. One is we live in an attention culture, which is why you can get a lot of this ostentatious 
crazy displays of clothing and things like that. And you, and especially when so many of us build our livings online and you have to get, you have to get more and more out there in order to garner more attention. Like it's an arms race as right. far as who can get attention. So we're in an attention culture, but then a very big subset of who we are is also in a victim culture. And the bigger of a victim you are, then the higher your status is within that culture as well. Mm. And so it's so tricky to be able to figure out. And again, this is why it's going to be very contextual as far as like who you are as an individual, what your own political, philosophical, religious, moral beliefs are, where you live, who are the people you interact with, what are the industries that you work in, those types of things, because all of those are going to have a different variation of it's this much dignity, this much attention, this much victim or anything else. And so, you know, some guy who is totally woke is going to represent his anti-masculinity by dressing completely androgynously. And for him, that's the best way to be a man is to eschew all patriarchal versions of masculinity and to embrace the feminine aesthetic. And that's what it means to be healthy and secure in his masculinity, right? Whereas some guy who is still very much part of a dignity culture is going to want to dress in a way that is a little bit more quiet and a little bit more humble and a little bit more unassuming, but still doesn't look like he's a kid wearing a graphic t-shirt and baggy cargo shorts. And a guy who's primarily in an attention culture is going to want to dress in a way that gets him as much attention. It's, it's such a tricky question to be able to answer because we don't have a mainstream culture anymore. We're balkanized as a society now. I think that's you. You mentioned something at one point where you said that we will probably never go back to the suit as the standard uniform for men because of that fact. So, given that, how do men start to develop their own sense of style when the tribes are essentially all over the place and the culture doesn't have a primary frame of reference? This is where you lean into what your tribes actually are. You have to really take the time to dig into and understand what your tribes are and what is it that, how much do you want to belong to that tribe? How much do you want to conform versus rebel? How much of your identity is rooted in, I belong to this particular tribe versus it's that I pull in elements from this one, but I've also got this one, that one, and that one that I pull into it as well. This is the hard thing is that dressing, <coughs> dressing well used to be super easy. It was just default. You, you go back to America in the sixties. And if you wanted to dress well, it was, it was mad men. It was, that's all it was. Like you didn't yeah. have to think that hard about it. It was so easy to do, but now, and it, 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 I want to frame this the right way. In fact, I just sent an email to my list about this this week. When you know how to do it, it's still just as easy. And I imagine you can attest to this because you've worked with me We've put in a bunch of work to get you to be able to think about it the right way, but you probably stress less about your clothing after working with me than you ever did before, even if you didn't recognize that you stressed out, stressed out about your clothing prior to working. Well, for sure. You, right? Yeah. Right? Absolutely. And so it's almost like you have to go up over the bump of learning how to think about all this and learning how to think about your culture and your tribe and your own personal goals and aspirations and how that's all reflected with your clothing. And once you do all that work, then it, you can come back to things being just as easy. But there's that bump there that didn't used to be there that you now have to work through and get over. Well, it's a steep learning. I guess and that's why I have a job. Yeah, right. And <laughs> you probably always will. Yeah. Uh, there's a steep learning curve to it. But it also, uh, one of the things I learned from you was the idea of the different dials that you can turn up or turn mm -hmm. down. 
and those dials are context related. Uh, they, you know, you might be thinking about your tribe. You may be thinking about uh, so many different things. And the one that I've been playing with the most lately is texture and pattern, mm -hmm. uh, primarily texture. And so I think about like uh, when I woke up this morning and it's warmer today, right? So uh, we haven't, we had these big storms come through. I hit the gym, did my workout, prepping for the podcast, and I thought, what do I feel like wearing today? Um, I've got a few standard things that I wear as my uniform when I when I'm working from home or when I'm uh, doing you know shooting a podcast. And I was leaning towards something that had more simplicity to it. Mm -hmm. And so my initial thought is white t-shirt. Uh, and then I thought, but I don't want to be that casual. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, I want something that's got some texture to it. And so the shirt that I'm wearing now is not just a standard button up shirt. It has some texture. It's mm -hmm. thinner, but it has some texture to it. And when I put it on and I tuck it in, I feel completely comfortable. It's exactly what I wanted to wear today. Yep. It has a level of formality that's perfect for what I'm uh, you know, wanting to accomplish for showing up to this podcast and the, the next recording that I'm doing. Uh, but at the same time, I'm completely comfortable in the, in the uh, context of my home. And so right. learning to play with those dials rather than just conforming to society, I think has been one of the things that has made the biggest difference. And so I can't say that I don't think about it. I do. But it's just easier to think about. And in a way, it's almost more enjoyable. Right. Because you end up coming into this conversation and your next recording feeling way more comfortable and confident than you would be otherwise. Right. And you actually enjoy the process because it's a skill set that you develop that most guys find is like, oh, this is actually really kind of fun when I get to get good at it. I only hate it because I suck at it. Yeah. And I guarantee you that the that guys who are listening may think about all those things that you just addressed as like, wow, that sounds like a lot of work, but I bet it took you less than 10 seconds to run through all that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Right. It's basically yeah. almost on autopilot at this point with you just making little fine calibrations because you've already developed a skill set. Yeah. Yeah. The skill yeah. sets there, the systems are in place, the way that I've got my closet set up, the way that I think about it, I've thought about this stuff ahead of time. And so it makes it so much easier to make those, uh, those decisions. Now, when you and I started working together, I was going through a transition with my profession mm -hmm. and spending a lot more time online or in front of people. Um, and it, there was this big question that I had of how do I dial in my appearance? How do I dial in the, the visual communication so that I can feel authentic and comfortable and also communicate exactly what I want? It, it seems like life transitions are where men make either drastic changes to their appearance or they tend to revert back to maybe a more childish level of dressing. So as men go through different changes, whether it's a new job or um, a, a new relationship or just a new stage of life, how can they consciously adjust their appearance so that they can comfortably go from one phase to the next? I love that you're bringing this up because I think it brings home a point that's really important that a lot of men miss because I think it's pretty safe to say that most men would, you know, if you're speaking stereotypically, would say that women care about clothing more than men do. 
Okay. Yeah. And right when it comes to following the latest trend or understanding what's fashionable versus what isn't, when it comes to like really getting excited about, you know, dressing up this way for this event or something else like that, that stereotype stands to reason. When it comes to having a an incredibly strong link between what your identity is and what your self-perception is and the way that you dress, men care about clothing way more than women do. Right, right. Way more than women do. Uh, we have such a strong connection between those two, which is why most of my clients are only ready to work with me. They may be, you know, they may think that what I do is interesting. They may see some of the value of it or things like that. They may follow me on social media for years, but most guys are only really ready to work with me when they actually are going through a big enough transition that it does either threaten or drastically expand their sense of identity, right? So I, I love that you're that you acknowledge that because that's a really important thing. And and so I would say the best thing that you can do is consciously recognize that that is what's happening. You are becoming a different version of yourself. And who do you want to be on the other side of this? And then the next question is, how can you help reinforce or become that version of who you want to be by dressing in a way that that's what you see when you look in the mirror every day? That's what you see when you post on social media. In your case, that's what you see when you're posting up photos on a dating profile, which is what I have a client doing who's gotten divorced after 20 years. He's never had to be on these dating apps. And so how do we, how does he dress in a way that that new sense of self rather than the old married version of himself is what he sees when he's, when he's putting that out into the world. And so it's, it's lo looking at this as a tool of rather than it just being identity reinforcement, it can also help as a tool of identity creation or expansion. Yeah. I love that perspective. You know, there's uh, there's a lot that's communicated through the visual, especially relative to our beliefs and our perspectives on life. Uh, religion has always educated the dress of its followers, you know, from the ceremonial Catholic priest robes to the everyday wear like the Sikh turban. Mm -hmm. um, how does a man's internal and sometimes religious beliefs affect how he dresses? It's, it's huge. I, it's one of those things where you think about... And I, I'm sad that more guys don't take advantage of this. And I think it's a testament to one of the many things that we miss by losing out on not only organized religion, but even things like fraternal organizations or codes of honor or conduct mm -hmm. or things like that is that we're not really, <clears throat> we're not an oath society anymore. Right. right. You know, like you don't keep, you don't have to keep your oath. If you don't want to stay married anymore, get divorced. If you don't want to, you know, live up to this contract, then break it. If you don't yep. like, if you don't want to belong to this particular faith or keep that covenant or whatever, like you don't have to do it anymore. We're not a, we're not a culture that really values its oaths. And for the most part, when you look at religious clothing, fraternal clothing, things like that, yes, a lot of it was used to signal status and kind of like where you fit within the hierarchy of the group. Sure. But more often than not, it was used as a way to remind the wearer of the omnipresence and the seriousness of the oaths that they've taken or the promises that, they, that they've made or the covenants that they've made. And you don't have to only do that as part of an organized religion. You can decide that these are what your principles are 
And you see, I think you see this to some extent with tattoos with people where, you know, sure. it represents yeah. things that they believe in. And it, there's, there's merit to that for sure. And I would love to see more of it with clothing, but it really can be that this is who I am and this is who I'm committed to be. And as part of a symbol of that commitment and my integrity in this, I'm going to wear this as a reminder of that every single day. I'm going to put that on my body every day. And it's going to force me to remember that this is a commitment that I've made every day. Yeah, I think it's it, it can be very powerful. I mean, we talked about your ring. I've had several friends who are uh, Masons who wear the, the the ring of the compass and the square. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had uh, several Jewish friends, uh, Sikh friends, that their religious clothing uh, has a strong significance. You know, and you talk about fraternal. Uh, you think back to, I mean, what what's one of the the most famous pieces of clothing in the world? And it's the, it's the master's jacket, right? Mm -hmm. The green jacket. That's if you win the masters, then you are one of very few people in the entire world. The right to wear that. Earn the right to wear that piece of clothing. And um, yeah, it's been something that's been on my mind. So I, I love how you talk about that there, even if you are not a part of a fraternity or something that uh, is having you create these oaths, with other people. You can still make oaths and covenants and promises to others and have something that represents that. Mm-hmm. I, I want to shift gears just a little bit because it, there seems to be some universal uniforms out there nowadays that uh, I'm wondering if you can take some time to critique them and uh, talk a little bit about what the visual communication says. Okay. All right. So the tech bro, typically what I see with a tech bro is uh think Lululemon pant with some whatever up top, maybe a really mm-hmm. bad polo, maybe a t-shirt, and then some sort of version of an overpriced Jordan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that is very much a, it's a uniform. And that's the irony is that the the guys who started those styles, Zuckerberg and others, that was intended to be a middle finger to the old uniform of suiting. It was an, it was an act of rebellion of, I'm not going to conform to your standards and now it's just become a uniform unto itself. And so that's that's the real irony is that the anti, and I mean, this is not unique to tech culture. I was very involved in like uh, extreme sports like BMX and snowboarding involved in punk rock and stuff like that. Right. And, right. and any counterculture, when you remove it from the context of being counter to another culture is incredibly uniform within itself as a culture when everybody has green liberty spikes then they're not they're not unique anymore right and so the tech bro uniform isn't any less conformist than the suits that that your dad's generation wore you're just as much of a conformist as he was it's just that the uniform has changed all right so the finance bro typically chinos button-up shirt and the ever-present vest and probably a patagonia for those that can afford it yeah right and that's another one of those that it's just like well you know, we're not our dad's generation that they wore suits all the time. Like Gordon Gecko's kind of a caricature. And this is us being a little bit more chill. And it, I think this again goes back to the fact that our culture very recently has turned away from America's always been anti-aristocracy, but right. that doesn't mean that we still didn't believe in like aspiration, right? Yeah, right. The men who right. founded this country still believed in being aspirational, but they believed that it should be a level that everybody could rise to. Whereas now what we've gone is we've turned back and like worshiped the middle. And so you get guys that are making millions and millions of dollars trading, but they have to dress like that, like they don't have any money. They have to dress like everybody else because that's the, 
that's the cultural pinnacle as far as you have to look like the every man. And so it's just another manifestation of that. Okay. Final one is the dad uniform. Uh, as you know, I'm a, I, I battle against the dad bod and a lot of my contact uh, or content. So generally the dad uniform from what I see is uh, maybe a bad polo shirt, uh, poorly fitting jeans and some sort of sneaker, either a try hard sneaker that they spent way too much money on or a, but I bought the most comfortable Hoka I could find sneaker. <laughs> yep. Your Hey dudes or whatever else. Right. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> I have a lot of, um, I have a lot of sympathy for dads in this regard. I've got six young kids myself with the seventh on the way. So wow. I know how tiring it is to be a dad. It's tiring. And it's tiring in a different way now because I would a lot of young dad, not even young dads, um, but I would say most dads that still have kids at home. I mean, the numbers are out there. Our level of involvement with our kids compared to the level of involvement that our fathers or that their fathers had with them is just astronomical difference, like three, four, five times the amount of investment as a father into your kids' lives and what than what we oh, got or what yeah. our parents got, right? Big, big, and big so, time. and so, not only are you working full time, but you're actually involved as a father full time. And there's the pressure of of trying to maintain a marriage and trying to be a good dad and still trying to provide physically for your family and everything else. And I, I totally get that. Clothing can be a, an emotional and a, and a psychological security blanket where it's like, this is my identity. This is one of the few areas where my personality can come out. My own hobbies or interests or likes can come out. It can be one of the few things that I have to think about any harder or have to really deal with anymore. And so I have a lot of sympathy for the dad uniform. And the only challenge that I would offer to you is, again, what we've talked about is I know how much harder it can be to dress in a way that's a little bit more intentional, but it's only harder for a little bit until you get good at it. And then the benefits as far as what that signals to your kids, as far as what marriage and fatherhood can be like, what it signals to your wife, as far as like your level of investment in her and in your family, what that can do for you from your own self perspective of, I don't see a dude in the mirror who's tired and barely making it through the day every day. But I see a guy in the mirror who at least looks like he's got things together and is on top of things and what that can do for your self-perception. And so I would argue that more so than for everybody else, dads with kids at home, not only have an obligation to your family, and I know you don't want to hear about another obligation because you're already swimming in them, but you will benefit more yourself by developing a sense of style that reinforces that you're pretty kick-ass as a dad and that's what you that's what you want to be and that's what you want to see every day perspective um it, it, shifting gears just a little bit uh what is a gentle dork and <laughs> are they the only ones playing dress up okay so i this is another one where i feel there's a little bit of derision for this term but the derision for the term definitely comes from the fact that i was one of these guys for sure so you can Oh, I could totally own it. I mean, if you go I, I back and too, so I resonate with it, right? If you go back and look at when I first started doing this stuff 11, 12 years ago, basically, it's the idea of dressing up like it's the 1950s or like it's another like you, you think you're being a gentleman. But the problem is, is that when you don't embody any of these other aspects of masculinity, you don't have the courage, the strength, the mastery, the honor, you're not accomplishing things with your life, you're not doing things that are hard. and actually making things happen. And so you're, you're soft, you lack confidence, you're, you're a fet, 
And then you dress in a way that 80 years ago was a symbol of status and accomplishment and masculinity. What it does is it actually creates a very jarring juxtaposition. And rather than that taking you being at this kind of low level and helping bring you up to a higher level, it actually just highlights how low that level actually is and makes it look even worse than it would be otherwise. And so sadly, the gentle dorks are the guys that think that they're offsetting their weakness in other areas by dressing well, which is really just dressing formally or dressing like it's the mid 20th century. And you're, you're just exacerbating your problem instead. Great perspective. You mentioned one day that, um, you know, this comment about, uh, or this concept of main characters and NPCs, non-player characters, and it was such a, a powerful concept. It was actually a lesson that my uh, wife and I had with uh, our daughter recently, as we were taking her out shopping um, can you explain how that if I am dressing down or if I'm dressing sloppily, how does that affect other people? How does this fit into the main main character, non-player character concept of other people's lives? Yeah, so I'll give you the same example that I've used with this before because um, I feel like it's it's really powerful and potent. I have a client who financially just great for himself. And he runs in some very, very good circles. And he was uh, telling me that one time uh, there were, you know, a bunch of executives, guys that are worth a ton of money were on a golf trip down in Florida and they decided that they wanted to go grab lunch. And so they went into Ruth's Chris mm. and from their perspective, Ruth's Chris isn't that big of a deal, you know, like it's a chain restaurant and stuff like that. You know, it's not like you're going into some like I don't even know the terms like five diamond Michelin star, whatever, you know, like it's right, right. But for a lot of other people, Ruth's Chris is a big deal. This is a place that they go to, to propose or to go celebrate their anniversary yeah. or to go celebrate that they've got the job or things like that. And it's a place that the restaurant, even though it's chain, it still treats itself and bills itself. Like it's a big deal. You know, the servers are dressed up and they bring out the food on uh, on plates that they do this whole like display thing and it's it's silverware and cloth napkins and all this kind of stuff and so this whole idea of like npc versus main character and the complaint that my client had is he when they when he found out that they were going there he wanted to dress in a way that was respectful to the other patrons that were there in the restaurant he wanted to contribute to that environment because he recognized that for a lot of people this is a big deal and so you know he didn't go crazy it's not like he wore a tux but he had on a sport coat and a classic polo shirt as opposed to it being like a golf polo shirt. And he had on loafers as opposed to sneakers and stuff like that. And so it wasn't really totally out there, but it was a way that was appropriate for that. And the other guys show up in baggy t-shirts that have, uh, you know, brands from the tech companies that they own and flip flops. And they just walk in like, it's not like they're walking into a McDonald's or something else like that. And they weren't even aware of the fact that they were to some extent, bringing down the environment and the experience for everybody else. And so they were acting as if they were not only the main characters in their own story, but they were the main characters in everybody else's story. Mm -hmm. Now, the opposite of what happens is when you get guys that are so afraid of standing out and so afraid of drawing attention to themselves that they dress like an NPC and they that's all they see themselves as and that's what they reinforce as far as their own identity because that's what they see in the mirror and in photos and stuff like that and so i think the best attitude to have about this is dress like you're a main character in your own story because you are and you should see yourself that way be multi-dimensional be interesting be growing and developing and dress in a way that reinforces that identity to you 
but also be socially aware enough that you are not the main character of everybody else's story and let them have their experiences in their ways, especially when you are in environments where things can be a bigger deal than they would be on just the street or a regular day-to-day interaction. Yeah, because that kid who has saved up his money to take his girlfriend out on the date, the uh, the young man who's looking to to propose, and he has not only saved for months or years to buy the ring, but to take uh, his uh, girlfriend and future fiance to that dinner, looks around and sees guys in shorts and and flip flops. It doesn't add to the atmosphere. No. It, it distracts or it detracts and distracts from the from the moment and how amazing that moment could be. Yeah. And let people have their moments. Pretty, pretty powerful. Yeah. Um, Tanner, one of the cornerstones of your philosophy and your program is you you help people to uh detect what their archetype is or how you know where where do they lean most. So can you describe a little bit about the archetype concept and how do people, where would people go to learn more about their own personal archetype? Yeah, absolutely. So the archetypes were an idea that, that really kind of started to come to fruition as I was writing heavily and trying to, to really understand, because there's not, there's not really anybody else out there who talks about the philosophical application or implications of clothing, especially as it relates to men. You know, I've been able to pick up a few different books, but this isn't something that's really addressed heavily. And so a lot of what I've done is been as I've, you know, worked with clients or thought out loud or written things and the archetypes were something that came out of that. And the real basis behind that is that your style should start with who you actually are internally. Most of us have it backwards. Most of us take our style cues from external sources, whether that's our wives or somebody on YouTube or a fashion magazine or again, what our favorite hobby was when we were in junior high school, like we take it from external cues. Your style should start with who you are on the inside, and then it should build off of that and incorporate in those external cues in order to have it be something that actually works for you. And I found that there's really only kind of like three categories or camps that people fall into as far as what those internal cues can be. And those are what the archetypes are. And so they're easy to remember. It's rugged, refined, and rakish. And the best way to describe them is the rugged guys are the guys who you were at your best. You were most at home. You were your most competent and confident when you're doing something physical. That may be that you're a lumberjack or you're an electrician. It may be that you're just really into physical sports and hobbies, but you feel like you are at your best when you're doing something in the physical world. And there's clothing and styles that can reflect that and reinforce that back to you. The next one is refined. And this is where we jump from the physical world more into like the social world and social hierarchies. So refined guys are at their best because they understand how hierarchies work and they love playing by the rules. They love being able to climb the ladder and grease the right palms. And even that sounds kind of like shady. It's not, you just, you're at your best when you understand how people work. Um, and, and you like, you like playing by the rules and you like blending in and you like making all of that work. And then the third one is the rakish archetype. And these are guys who understand people and systems and hierarchies just as well as the refined guys do, but rather than being at their best and feeling the most confident when they are blending in, they feel most at home when they're standing out or when they're rebelling or when they're breaking the rules. And again, there's clothing styles and attitudes and ways to wear things that can reflect that. And so 
you can start with those. We all have elements of all three of them within us, but you'll lean primarily towards one more than the other two. It's a really good place to get started and to start to understand how your clothing can help you reinforce what your identity actually is based on your self-perception rather than based on what other people tell you it should be. And so I do have a quiz that you can take if you want to learn more about what that is and what that looks like. And I, you know, there's a breakdown on that. I have a course that you can take on how to really kind of like pull from all that. And you can start that process, even if you just want to take the quiz and see your results, just go to masculine-style.com and the quiz is right there. Right. Well, Tanner Guzzi, the book is The Appearance of Power. The website, masculine-style.com. The man is Tanner Guzzi. And we joked one day that uh, we basically have the same job. We just come at it from two different ways. You totally. focus on uh, helping people to uh, to dress better, uh, to become more evolved and more mas masculine men. I do it from the uh, nutrition and the movement space, but we're essentially in it for the same reasons. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, we've connected and had so many great conversations over the years. Uh, so I want to thank you for coming on. Um, if people want to learn more, they're interested in getting more information from you, buying your book or getting coaching from you, where's the best place for them to go? So like you already said, the the title of the book and the site, those are great places to start. Best to reach out to me via social media. So I'm active on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And all of those are just at Tanner Guzzi. My DMs are open. And so if you've got questions, if you're interested in working with me or learning more or whatever else, shoot me a DM and we'll talk and we can go from there. All right. Well, Tanner Guzzi, thanks again for coming on and uh, really appreciate your wisdom and all of the great things that you've shared with our listeners today. Always fun getting to hang out and talk with you, Steve. So thanks for having me back on. You bet. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today for this episode of The Evolved Man. If you're learning from and gaining value from this podcast, please subscribe to The Evolved Man newsletter where I can support you even more in your personal evolution. I want to help you reverse engineer your success. The Evolved Man newsletter is like getting a free coaching session to keep you moving forward on your path of personal success. Go to the evolvedmanpodcast.com to sign up today. If you found value in this episode, you can give us up to a five-star rating on Apple and Spotify and share it with your network. That's the best way to support the podcast so we can continue to get great guests and provide you with the best wisdom for your daily life. Until next time, keep evolving.